as I read Romans chapter 10 verses 4 through 8. Romans chapter 10 verses 4 through 8. Hear God's holy word. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And let us pray together. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for how clearly and how powerfully you set forth through this Apostle Paul, along with the others, the way of salvation, the way of faith. And we ask you that as clearly as it is set forth in the verses which are before us, they might be made clearer still by the preaching and the the work of of the illumination of the spirit inwardly in the hearts of those who hear. Oh God, here is the word of faith which we preach, the apostle said. So as it still goes forth, this very word, this word of faith which is preached, may it inspire in the hearts of these people just what it did in the days of the apostles, namely faith in Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Well, we find ourselves in the midst of this greater discussion. Let me remind you where the apostle Paul is contemplating the great burden of his own heart, and that is the fact that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, uh, his, uh, the people of his own nation, the Jews, were standing outside the church even as he was standing in. And you can imagine, even as we've seen in Acts, how his heart was made to wonder that he, uh, I think he could say, and we could say along with him, was among all the Jews, the one who was animated by the greatest degree of animosity and hatred to this new uh, movement and message now stood within. Now, that did not give him a sense of superiority. That is something that at once made his heart wonder at grace, uh, at sovereign distinguishing grace. But at the same time, it made his heart break uh, for his countrymen. And so Paul is reflecting upon this. What is it that God is doing? He reflects, you remember, in chapter 9, as well as the end of chapter 8, on the purpose of God, a purpose that cannot fail, the purpose of God, which is according to election. It's not a matter of him who wills, but of the call of God, verse 11 of chapter 9. That really is, I think, the most important verse along with verse 6. Well, so he's glorying in the purpose of God. He says, it's not a matter of he who wills, but uh, not only of he who calls, but he who hardens. Why do the Jews stand outside? Well, they're like Pharaoh, you could say. God Harden them in their unbelief. But at the same time, as he closes out that chapter, he begins to reflect upon their unbelief. You see, there's another side to this. The unbelief of the Jews is not explained solely in terms of the purpose of God. That's the great idea. Always you begin with God in answering any great theological question. But there's also uh, the facet of human responsibility. They stand outside because, well, the stone was placed in their very midst and they stumbled over that stone in unbelief. In other words, it's the side of human responsibility. When you consider the fact of unbelief, as I said, as I've said many times, uh, man, if he is not saved, is no one to blame but himself. 
that is the sad truth about the Jews. And, well, Paul begins to reflect upon that once more in verses 1 through 3. He's, he's telling us how he feels about the Jews, the sorrow, uh, the grief that he feels towards them. And yet he tells us why things are as they are, and that is because of their ignorance. It is because of their unbelief. God offered them salvation or righteousness as a gift. And still being ignorant of the righteousness of God, they were seeking to establish their own. That's how he ends in verse uh, three. Where in, at the end of chapter nine, he says they were they were seeking righteous, the righteousness of the law, but they fell short. That's the whole tragedy of the Jews, that they fell short of the very thing they sought, namely righteousness. Well, all of that being in the background leads the Apostle Paul to state now, I've said this many times. Let me say it again. One of uh, his clearest and, and, and mightiest statements of the gospel. So many of those in the book of Romans. Verse four, he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Once again, we are we are forced to say this is one of the key statements in the book of Romans. It's a statement that we better know by heart, that we better understand. It's something that the Jews didn't understand, and that's why they fell short. Do we understand what Paul means when he says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes? Doesn't that remind you of so many other statements, such as what he says at the beginning, his thesis statement, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, uh, for it is the power of God to salvation uh, to everyone who believes, and in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 or, or we think of what he says in chapter 3, verse 28, summing up the gospel. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. By faith, not by works. Well, so many times we see these great summary statements. I'm saying that Romans chapter 10, verse 4 belongs uh, along with the others in that class. He is summarizing for us the way of salvation. How is a man saved? Well, in a sense, you could say this was the way that the Jews were seeking, but they had missed so tragically, namely the way of righteousness. Now, let us see it once. And this is really the key thought in Romans. And again, Paul is crystallizing it for us that salvation is a matter of righteousness. I'll say that again. Salvation is a matter of righteousness. We've noticed the importance of this word already, just uh, in, the, in the most recent verses. It keeps on appearing over and over, three times alone in verse 3. Let me read verse 3 again. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Well, that must be a very important idea. Or uh, at the end of verses, uh, I mean at the end of chapter 9 in verses 30 and 31, we find the word over and over again. And we see that the real trouble with the Jew was in terms of how he sought righteousness. It wasn't that he sought the wrong thing. Don't don't think of the Jew like that. On this point, the Jew was absolutely right. He he had pinpointed the key idea. Righteousness. In order to be right with God. God himself must consider us righteous. We must be found righteous in his sight. Otherwise, we are absolutely and utterly lost. We can never be saved. Well, the trouble with the Jew was not that he missed that point. 
But the trouble with the Jew is how he sought it. You see, that's the tragedy of the Jews. They were seeking the right thing. But they missed it completely. Because they sought it by a law of righteousness. By works of the law rather than, as Paul says, by faith. Verse 32 of chapter 9. Why did they fail to attain the law of righteousness? Verse 31. Because, verse 32, they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. We find him saying the same thing in chapter 10, verse 3. Well, that leads the Apostle Paul to do two things in the verses before us, verses 4 through 8. One is to summarize the way of salvation in terms of righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to the one who believes. And then he can contrast two ways of righteousness in verses 5 through 8. And those will be the two points of the sermon. Now, those two ways go beyond verses 5 through 8, but... We will end at verse 8 for the purposes of the sermon. So two main points. First, what he says in verse 4. It's clear that Paul is continuing to make his case. He's stating uh, his earnest desire for his kinsmen, his brothers, according to the flesh, the Jews. It's clear from the first word, for, in fact, uh, all of the verses 2 through 5 begin with the word 4. Verse 2, 4. Verse 3, 4. Verse 4, 4. And verse 5, 4. They're all connected. It's, uh, they're all linked together as chains in an argument. So he's saying something like this. Verse 3, the Jews are ignorant concerning God's righteousness. Verse 4, the reason that they're ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, not submitting to the righteousness of God, was because... Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, it should be clear when he puts it like that in verse four, that righteousness is a category of the law. My interest is not in denying this, nor was it Paul, was it Paul's, even though, uh, as you know, his opponents so constantly accused him of this. Paul, you're overturning the law. They said the same thing to Jesus. Jesus says, as Paul, I have no interest of the sort. A man is considered righteous when he's kept the law. Now that's something I think that everyone in this room, even the, ch- even the children, can grasp. Let me say it again. A man is considered righteous when he has kept the law. Who's the righteous man? It's the man who's kept the law. There's your answer. That's what righteousness is. It's conformity to the law. But the trouble is, As Paul took so much trouble to unfold in chapters 1 through 3, and as I hope you know about yourself by now, that no one keeps the law. Do I have to convince you of that? Or are we clear about that by now? No one keeps the law. And so no one is righteous. Chapter 3, verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. Or we remember what Paul says to the Jews in particular in chapter 2. In essence, he says, you who boast in the law and teach others the law, do you keep it? No, you do not. In fact, he says, God is blasphemed because of you. Because you set yourself up as teachers of the law. But everybody knows you don't keep it. It might have been better if you confessed along with we that no one keeps the law. All have fallen short. And so the basic position of mankind is this. He needs to be righteous. Otherwise, God will reject him. There's no hope for man apart from righteousness. And the Jews of all people realized this. 
And the law is the means by which righteousness is achieved or attained. But man is unable to keep it. He will always fall short. And the law will always, rather than declaring man to be righteous before God, will always reveal his sin to him and declare him to be one who is guilty before God. It will condemn him. But it's on just this point that the gospel tells us of another way to be righteous. Paul himself glories in this earlier on when he says in verse 20, uh, verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Where is it revealed? Well, it's revealed in the gospel. It's revealed on the cross. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified, that is declared righteous, freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here is another way of righteousness. Not that, let me be clear, as Paul himself is clear, we're not setting aside the law, we're establishing it in the very thing we preach, the thing that God is doing. We are not suggesting that somehow or other the law is set aside by the gospel, but rather what we are saying is this, that the very demands of the law for righteousness are met not in ourselves, but in another. That's the gospel. I'll tell you about an alien righteousness later on in the sermon. Alien in the sense that it's found outside of me, not in myself. You see, righteousness, I say again, is when the demands of the law are met. Where are they met? Not in me, but in someone else. That's what Paul preached. That's what I preach. The gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ. Where are those demands met? Well, I've said in him, let me be more specific. They are met at the cross. Whom God, verse 25, set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate what? To demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over sins that were previously committed. Nothing could atone for sin but this. But in this God was fulfilling the righteous demands of the law. So too in verse 25 of chapter 4. The law is, is fulfilled at the, in the resurrection. Christ who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Finally we could say in verse 19 of chapter 5. That the demands of the law were met in his obedience, his life of obedience, contrasting Adam with Christ, he says, for as by one man's disobedience, that is Adam, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous or many will be justified in the sight of God. And so the basic picture that Paul has set forth is this, that righteousness is found not in the law, but in Christ. But how is it found in Christ? Well, in this way, verse four, in that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That is the the portrait or the picture of the gospel appears in Christ's relation to the law. We have not kept it, but he has. That's the all important point. It is in him that the righteousness of God for justification is revealed to the one who has faith. And it is in him that the gift of righteousness is offered and is received by the one who has faith. Still, I find it curious and I wonder whether you do as well that Paul says that he is the end of the law for righteousness. That's a curious expression, isn't it? At least I find it to be. In what sense is Christ the end of the law for righteousness to the one who has faith. 
And I could divide this into three possible views, although really there's something to be said for each, and I think I'm going to suggest that all three are right. It's a kind of comprehensive summary statement, what he says in verse 4. So I'm going to offer three views and commend them each to you. The first is that, and this is by far uh, the most common view that you will find in commentaries and sermons of old. Christ is the, the end of the law in that he accomplishes for us the demands of the law for righteousness. In this way, those who have faith are made righteous by his obedience because his righteousness in obeying the law is imputed to them. So he becomes the end of the law for righteousness to them and to them only. That is, as I say, the common view. He's the end of the law in the sense that he keeps the law, he fulfills the law and so on. A second view, which is less common, is uh, though still possible, given the words used, that Christ is the end in view when the law was given. When the law was given, it was looking forward to Christ. Or you could say that its true purpose was realized in Christ. And then third, that Christ, this is what John Murray argues, and I'll argue it along with him, though not as exclusively uh, in relation to the other views, that in Christ, our relation to the law is brought to an end. The one who believes uh, is divorced from the law, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, so that the believer is now finished with its commands for righteousness and its threats for obedience. Again, one thinks of what the Apostle Paul says earlier about the believer being finished with the law in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, or in chapter 6, where he speaks of our being dead to the law and that we must reckon ourselves uh, to be so, no longer under the law, but under grace. Well, as I say, I would argue for all three. And something like this is found in Robert Haldane's commentary when he says, the law fell short of attaining its end. Or at least man himself did. He did not attain righteousness through the law. And so Haldane goes on to say, quoting Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4, which I think uh, are two very helpful verses in understanding what Paul means in chapter 10, verse 4. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, quoting that, Haldane goes on. Thus it is that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, righteousness to everyone who believes. By him is accomplished for all such the whole purpose and object of the law. I like that way of putting it very much. By him is accomplished for all such, that is, all who have faith, the whole purpose and object of the law, all its demands being fulfilled, and the end for which it was given attained, namely righteousness. And then I would add, along with Murray, in this way, the believer is finished with the law, at least as a way of achieving righteousness before God. And so it comes to this, going back to what Paul says in chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. What man could not do through the law, weak as he was, Christ did for us. In him, the end of the, right, uh, of the law was attained, namely righteousness. It was attained for us. By him, not by ourselves. No one has kept the law. Not even Adam did in, in innocence. All have fallen short. All have sinned. And you see that in light of that, 
the folly of ever thinking. And don't think that it was only ever the Jews who thought this. No, it was the Roman Catholics who thought this and who still think this. Why else did we have the Reformation? It's many of us who still think this when we fall into our old legalistic ways. The folly of thinking that somehow or other by our own obedience we are made acceptable to God. That we are made righteous in his sight by what we have done, by what we have achieved. You see, the man who's th- who thinks this, Paul says, he's ignorant. He's ignorant about the law, yes, but even more importantly, he's ignorant about the righteousness of God. He doesn't know anything about it. He would never suggest, I am righteous. He wouldn't even begin to think it in his heart if he really knew anything about the righteousness of God. Do you see how valuable it is that we should have yet another sermon on justification by faith? Here's what Paul says. He who seeks righteousness by faith, faith in Christ is the man who will find it. Lacking his own, he will come to possess the righteousness of faith from God as a gift. That's the gospel. But that leads him then uh, to expand upon this. In contrasting two ways of righteousness. Now, I've already been doing that, haven't I? There's the way of the law and then there's the way of faith. Or there's the way of works and the way of faith. Uh, I couldn't help, and I even began to speak of this last time, of uh, a lesser known sermon that Martin Luther wrote. I wonder if you've ever heard of it, but my mind was immediately drawn to this. And I will admit, he's not making the exact same distinction that Paul is here, but But there was a sermon which he preached in 1519, so the Reformation really wasn't even underway yet. And actually, you get that sense in reading the sermon. The categories are not altogether clear. Nevertheless, the sermon was entitled Two Kinds of Righteousness. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about two kinds of righteousness, that of works and that of faith. And and, and the most helpful thing that Luther says in that sermon, and I said this earlier on, is he described The righteousness of Christ as an alien righteousness, the righteousness that is imputed to the believer, is not his own. It is a righteousness that comes from outside of himself and being imputed or credited to him so he is seen and declared as righteous in God's sight. That's justification. It's not a matter of my own righteousness. That's the second kind of righteousness. It's a matter of an alien righteousness. Let me read just one quote. He says, through faith in Christ, therefore, Christ's righteousness becomes our righteousness. And all that he has becomes ours, rather, he himself becomes ours. So there are two ways, the way of faith and the way of works, the way of grace and the way of the law. There are two paths, if you think of the story of Pilgrim's Progress, two paths that a man might trod. On his way to glory, the way of faith and the way of works, or in his pursuit of righteousness, two means by which he seeks to attain righteousness. We've already seen what they are, but here let us explore the idea a little further. There is the righteousness of the law. Verse five, for Moses writes about the righteousness, which is of of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. He's quoting Leviticus 18.5, as well as a few other places in the Old Testament. He is stating in the clearest possible way the works principle. What's the works principle? Well, the works principle is that the man who would live by the law must keep the law. That's it. A man who would be righteous in God's sight by his own works 
must be righteous indeed. He must actually be righteous. He must actually keep the law. If you want to be righteous, this is what the law says to you. It says, I am the standard. Imagine, Paul is saying, in a sense, the law is speaking to you. It's assumed the place of the preacher. It's saying, righteousness is achieved by me. The standard of righteousness and life are found in me, nowhere else. And the end of the law is righteousness for the one who keeps it, no one else. And so the standard that is set forth in the law is a matter of what? It's a matter of doing. The man who has kept the law, he's the one whose righteousness. Now, again, this is where the subtle error begins to creep in. It was the error of the Jews. I wonder if it's the error that you are sometimes prone to. Sometimes we think it's enough just to possess the law. God's given me the law. That means I'm in a position of favor with him or he's spoken the law to me. Or, or maybe we think, you know, I think favorable thoughts about the law. I agree with the law. You're st- you still haven't kept the law. The standard that is set forth in the law for righteousness is obedience. The only question that really matters from the standpoint of the law is this. Have you kept it? Not have you heard it, but have you kept it? Not did you like it, but did you do it? And that is, let us see, the most searching standard there is in all the world. There's nothing more searching than this. The law of the Lord is perfect, it is pure, and it is totally unforgiving. The law, Paul says in another place, works wrath to the transgressor. And a single transgression is all that it takes for us to be placed in the category of transgressor from the standpoint of the law. Only he who has kept it in full in thought, word and deed for the entirety of his life can be considered righteous. You see, it isn't even enough to say, well, from today on, I'm going to keep it. It doesn't matter. Have you sinned? Have you ever fallen short? Well, then you're not righteous and you never can be. And it isn't me who is saying that it's the law that says that. All of this, the apostle elaborates upon in chapters two and three. But let me also notice this because. Well, the Apostle Paul was saying something like this in chapter nine, that there is nothing unfair about this. There's no room that the law leaves for us to 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 complain or to excuse ourselves. This isn't fair. The law deals with us according to perfect justice, and it deals with us exactly as we are. It deals with us as sinners. And so when it condemns us. It's only being fair to us. It does so rightly. Again, Paul says as much in chapters 3, verses 19 and 20. But it ought to be clear at any rate that this way of righteousness will not do. A man might venture upon it, but he will never achieve that which he seeks, namely righteousness, the righteousness of God. It will never do for sinners like ourselves. You see, just as soon as you realize that I was born in sin, that I'm a sinner, you realize that this way is bankrupt. And so you will thank God that there's another way and you'll begin to listen about this other way. And that is the righteousness of faith, which Paul says in verse six. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. You see, it's talking to you. It's preaching to you. It has something else to say. And what it says is this. I I realize this is a little strange, but I hope to make it as plain as I can be. This is what the righteousness of faith says. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. Well, here the apostle is quoting something else from the the Pentateuch, 
That is the first five books of the Old Testament here. He is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 12 through 14. And it's interesting to notice how he does so. When Moses said this to Israel, he was actually talking about the law. He was dealing with the commands of God, which were found in the law. And what he was saying, in essence, was the commands that I give you are not out of reach. They're not out of your grasp. You might think that, but you would be wrong. Do not pretend that they are. They're very near to you in response to the imagined protest in the verse before verse 11, where he says, it's not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. As though to say it's out of my reach. Moses is saying, don't. Don't say that. But in this, the Apostle Paul finds a principle which states perfectly what he's trying to say himself. The same principle applies to the word of faith which we preach, that is the righteousness of faith. The Apostle is saying, and so I'm saying, do not say these things are too hard. Do not say that these are things which you cannot grasp. Do not say that these things are out of your reach. Do not imagine, he says, that they are down in the depths, the way of salvation, or that they are uh, they are lifted up into the heavens and that somehow you must. Well, you must lift yourself up that far if you would ever find the way of salvation. As Moses said to Israel, Paul is saying, so I say to you, the word of faith that we preach is very near to you. In fact, he says, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. As he goes on to say in verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Where is salvation found? In other words, where is faith found? It's found not up in heaven nor down in the depths. It's found in your very hearts and in your very mouths when you confess that Jesus is Lord and you believe it in your heart. That's all it takes, Paul is saying, for anyone to be saved. That's all it takes for anyone to be considered righteous. It doesn't matter who he is. He might be a Jew. He might be a Gentile. He might be a child. He might be an aged man. The only thing that matters is this. Does he have faith? Does he believe the message which is preached? But it's clear as well that Paul amplifies the thought of what I would call this needless quest, this needless journey to heaven or down into the depths. He amplifies the thought and in so doing communicates the gospel more fully and more clearly. Not only does he say he's quoting Moses, but then he amplifies Moses. Not not only who will ascend into heaven, but he adds that is to bring Christ down from heaven. And so the thought of Moses is made relevant to a Christian context in which the gospel is being preached. Do not say that Christ, whom we preach, is out of reach up in the heavens, though he is there now, for he has come down from heaven to us. And that's the whole message of the gospel. He has made himself accessible to man. He's come down from heaven. He's dwelt among us. He's made himself known to us in the incarnation. And though he's gone into heaven now, still he is accessible to the man who has faith. You see, he's there, but you might lay hold of him. You might possess even his righteousness. How? Well, by the word of faith, which we preach by faith. That's the answer. It isn't necessary 
to reach up into heaven and pull him back down to earth. None of you need to do that. All that is necessary is to have faith in him. You see, he's saying to the man who thinks of salvation as in terms, as the Jews did, as in terms of man's own accomplishment or man's own doing. He says, no, salvation is far simpler. Merely having faith in Christ is enough. It's all any man needs to be saved. And so to in addition to the thought in verse 7, who will descend into the abyss, he adds, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. It is clear how futile and unnecessary this is as well. For we need not look for him there. No, for though he went to the grave, he is there no more. He has risen from the grave and ascended into heaven. And if you're to look for him now, that's where you'll find him. Not in the grave, but at the right hand of God. That is where faith perceives the glories of Christ. But you see, as John Murray calls it, the language of unbelief protests to this as it did in Moses' day, so it did in Paul's day, and so it does today. The language, the language of unbelief protests to this word of faith, which, which we preach and says, where is he? I cannot find him. Where is Jesus? This Jesus you preached to me, I don't see him. No, it isn't like that, Paul says. You're making it at all far too difficult. He is found now in the word of faith which we preach. And when we believe that, then we possess him. Then we have Christ. Now that's the language of faith. You see, the language of unbelief says, where is he? I can't find him. The language of faith says, ah, oh, I found him. I found him. Even by the word that you have preached to me. In other words... Here we are along with the Jews on this quest for righteousness. And Paul says, if we want to know how to be righteous before God, how to possess the very righteousness of God, then there is no need to do anything or go anywhere except to believe the word which is preached. And he says that word is very near to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your hearts. And if you believe it in your hearts and you profess it with your mouth, well, then you've been saved. Then you are righteous in the sight of God. In other words, as Mart Lloyd-Jones says, there's no need for heroics. There's no need to go on a great heroic quest for the truth or for righteousness. That's the folly of the Jews. That's the folly of the Greeks. And that's the folly of man today. You don't need to become a philosopher. You don't need to become an adventurer. You merely need to have faith. If you've ever sat under the true preaching of the gospel, and I hope there, were, there is no one here today, at least, who could say they haven't. You already have it. The word of faith has come near unto you. Exactly as and where you are. It has done so even now through the preaching. God has made it known unto you. What? The righteousness of faith. Even as Mo, uh, God did through Moses to Israel. Through, uh, yeah, through Moses to Israel. And so there's really only one question left to ask, and that is, do you have faith? Do you believe the word of faith which has been preached to you? Again, I say, you needn't go up to heaven to find it, nor down into the abyss. Jesus Christ is near unto you. He draws near even now through the preaching. Now, I know that's a scandal for many. That's as difficult to believe today as it was back in the first century. For they stumble, that is the unbeliever stumbles, not only 
at the word which we preach, but actually the preaching itself, the preaching of the cross. Read First Corinthians chapter one. It's the preaching itself. That's the scandal. Are you really telling me that in the weakness of preaching, a man such as myself, that God is bringing salvation near unto you? And that is exactly what I'm telling you. That's the righteousness of faith that God brings to you through the preaching. In fact, Paul will say it is in just this way in a few verses that faith becomes possible. How does faith become possible? Well, it becomes possible through hearing. And how does a man hear? He hears by the preaching of the word, the very words of Christ. Romans chapter uh, 10 verses 14 through 17. How then shall they call on him on whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him? Of whom they have not heard. And how shall they hear it without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they're sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. Who bring glad tidings of good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Again, I say to you, that's the value of preaching. The preaching of the gospel. It's because through the preaching of the gospel, faith becomes possible and Christ is made accessible to you. For by faith, we lay hold of him. That is the gospel way of salvation. It is the way to become righteous before God in his sight. It is the way of faith, not of works. It is the way of grace, not of the law. It is the way which looks for righteousness in another and not in itself. That is the alien righteousness Luther speaks of. On this, again, we see the Jews stumbled and fell. In a sense, for them, it was all too easy. How could this be? But the Gentiles, in their simplicity, were happy about it. When the the apostles came to them and preached this gospel, the moment you believe this gospel, you're saved. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, verse 13, he will be saved. He will be declared righteous just where he is, just where you are. You needn't, uh, you, you needn't try to live a sinless life of perfection. You needn't try uh, to be righteous by the law. You needn't go on any great quest or journey. But you might be saved even now, exactly where you are and as you are. You need only cry out to the Lord Jesus right where you are and you will be saved. It's sad that any should stumble at this. You see, it's all so simple. Anyone might be saved wherever he is, if only he has faith. And yet the Jews heard this message. They stumbled and they fell. And not only they, but many, many others. Again, my question to you as I close is, do you have faith? Have you believed The gospel in the preaching of the gospel, God is offering you salvation as a gift. Even now, right where you are, have you accepted? This is the question that the gospel is always asking you. Have you accepted the gift of righteousness in Jesus Christ? Not have you achieved it, but have you accepted it? And please understand the difference, because in this lies all the difference between the two ways. I'm not asking you what you've achieved I'm asking whether you are willing to accept righteousness as a gift in the Son of God. Is that enough for you? Or are you still saying in your heart, it's something I must do, an achievement of my own, the result of my own journey and my own quest for righteousness and truth? There, 
Beloved, are the two ways of righteousness, the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of faith. And there is nothing in all the world more important than than that each of us should be clear about this one thing. On which of these two paths do we trot? Amen. And let us come to the table together.